Is Worcester, Massachusetts a city of queerness or a city of murder? That's what we're asking today on 508, a show about Worcester. It's October the 12th, I already regret coming in today, Mike. <laughs> I am Mike Benedetti. This is Brendan Melican. To answer whether Worcester is more about queerness or more about murder, Brendan, I think we should start with the, this report from the Human Rights Campaign. All right. What do you think? Bring it on. This is the Municipal Quality and Equality Index report for 2018. Have you looked, taken a look at this? I have not. Nice drawing on the front, though. Who did that? Uh, somebody from the Human Rights Campaign. The, the Human Rights Campaign, for those of, for those who are unclear because it has such a vague term, these, this is the uh, pro-gay rights organization that has the famous yellow equals sign mm-hmm. you see on people's bumper stickers. That's the Human Rights Campaign. Also known for their napkin doodles that they use for the covers of their reports. Oh, it's, it's a nice drawing. Yeah. Um, so this report is looking at how LGBTQ-friendly cities are from a perspective of municipal government, like how friendly City Hall is. Um, uh, you know, like the the chances that, let's say, an out gay person is going to get beat up in your city, mm-hmm. that's, that's not the kind of thing that this report is looking at, or like whatever, how many gay bars you have or how good your pride parade is. This is looking at... Uh, you know, on the municipal city government level, how good things are. Worcester is actually really good. Worcester gets 97 out of 100 and then gets eight bonus points, meaning that Worcester has a final score of 100 because they won't give you more than 100, even with the bonus points. All right. We do not get – there are two categories where we do not get a perfect score. One is inclusive workplace, where we get a zero out of two. Um, inclusive workplace in this report would would they would give us points if we we uh, if we had an LGBTQ pride group alliance or resource group or an LBT LBTQ inclusive diversity training for city staff or a recruitment program that actively advertises available positions to the LGBTQ community. Hmm. So I guess city government in Worcester is not doing a good job organizing or recruiting LGBTQ. Employees, so they give us no, zero for that category. When they when they talk about training, so they're not figuring in like the ethics training and the um, sort of like harassment and sensitivity trainings that are we have kind somebody, of the norm now. Yeah, I mean, there's a ton of trainings, right, for city employees. So I'm yeah. kind of surprised that our I'm kind of surprised our current trainings don't include that kind of stuff. You know, it also makes me think though, it makes me think back to the many. Um, you know, to the many complaints about the human rights campaign from the queer community. And I don't know if this is emblematic of them, but this is a complaint I have about this report, is that this report seemed to take uh, diversity training really seriously as a positive step. Whereas mm-hmm. I feel like in recent years, everything I read about diversity training makes me think it's not actually helpful. It's just the kind of thing that, you know, it's it, it, potentially counterproductive in that it would give the city a fig leaf. Right. So that if there were managers on the city level who were actively hostile to gay employees. Right but somehow could keep it under the radar, but the city had a diversity training, then if somebody says, hey, there's a manager hostile to gay employees, I feel like the city's doing a bad thing, the city can turn around and say, but we have diversity training, guys. Yeah. We're doing everything we can do. And then you have to say, well, I guess. I don't know. But- yeah. No, I mean, I think it's as someone who has spent uh, decades, I'm sure as you have too, sitting through uh, numerous uh, trainings along those lines, it's hard not to get the sen- and also uh, someone who uh, likes to think of themselves as a relatively unbigoted person, mm-hmm. they always kind of struck me as the sort of thing that's like, okay, we know a lot of you in this room are thinking this, but here are the things we never want to hear you say. Like from a human resources perspective, that's really not about uh, training your staff how to be uh, better human beings. It's more like, these are the things that we don't ever want to hear come out of somebody's mouth or see somebody do because it's going to open us up for a terrible lawsuit, and we don't want that to happen. Yes, yeah. yes. 
The other, I the, would be shocked if a lot of that wasn't already included in well, city, the city hall's uh, way of doing I, things. I feel, yeah, I mean, especially considering we could do so well otherwise. I think the the other thing where we don't get a perfect score is we could have gotten three points on municipal leadership's pro equality legislative or policy efforts, and we only get two points. So we lose a point there. We get we get extra points for things like city bullying prevention for city service prevention policy for city services, providing service to LGBTQ youth, homeless, elders, providing services to the HIV AIDS population, trans trans community. Actually, we don't get any points for tra- helping the trans community. But all those things we get points for. So what was the second one that we lost points for? Uh, we we don't have a perfect record as far as legislative or policy efforts. Okay. Yeah, but you we think we'd have a subcategory there where we'd also get extra credit in that category as being like the city that kind of kicked off our national movement for same-sex marriage? I mean, we are kind of like the – I mean, we really are the gay marriage capital of the world, yeah. I would say. This um, is kind of like Boston getting extra credit for the first reading of the Declaration of Independence, totally ignoring the star in front of our city hall, right? It's like, yeah, I know, we don't get a lot of attention for the sexy things that we do, but we do do them, and we do them pretty pretty awesome. I mean, Brendan, Delaware still like makes a big deal about the fact that they were the first state to sign the – Constitution of the Declaration of Independence or something, right? Delaware. So, like, I mean, people, you know, people, people, people take what they can get. Um, I was looking at some of the other cities, and I noticed a familiar city to me. Parkersburg, West Virginia, is uh, ranked on this list. This is the city where I went to high school, and a city where I still go a couple of times a year, and a city I have a great deal of affection for, and a city that instead of getting a a hundred percent got a thirteen percent. You're right. Well, congratulations, Parkersburg. <laughs> Let me. I, I. In this case, it's easier for me to talk about things where Parkersburg actually got points. Um, Parkersburg actually got points for properly reporting uh, hate crime statistics to the FBI. <laughs> they got a twelve out of twelve on that, so that's good. Um, and the uh, the thing that we lost a point on, they actually got one point for their uh, legislative or policy efforts on the municipal level. Hmm. So good job, Parker. I mean, that's the thing, though. Like, you you get a 12 for properly reporting hate crime statistics? That seems weird. That seems like a give me. You know, like, yeah. if you're not reporting your crime stats to the uh, Department of Justice, you've probably got bigger issues to worry about. Yeah. I mean, I, we can talk, too, about, like, cities that do a, a – uh, like, a city that does a bad job in Massachusetts, for example, would be Lowell, who has a 48 – uh, you know, most of the, most of the cities in this com- – there's a bunch of 100% in the Commonwealth, and there's a bunch of high-ranking cities in the Commonwealth, in mm-hmm. part because I think state legislation mandates that they do it. And it's, we're kind of awesome. Well, and this uh, – maybe. But this but this report th- this report sort of also highlights um, cities in states where the state is not mandating that they do a good job, where they still do a good job, such as Huntington, West Virginia, mm-hmm. not too far from Parkersburg, West Virginia, which gets a 95. Hmm. Good job, Huntington. Yeah. Morgantown, West Virginia, home of WVU, gets an 80. A lot better than average. So, good job, Morgantown. Anyway, so, okay. I mean, from that perspective, we're a pretty gay-friendly city, Brendan. Congratulations, Worcester. Congratulations, Worcester. Uh, I was I wanted to look at something where we would do, maybe did a bad job on, so I looked at crime, crime statistics. Oh, did we screw something up again? Well, you know, I mean, I'd, somehow I just noticed on Wikipedia that there was a giant list of uh Crime statistics. I think these are 2016 statistics. And okay. I'm going to compare these to Worcester's 2017 statistics. Um, like m- murder-wise, I think we're actually doing better than a lot of cities in the United States. Also, vehicle theft-wise, we're actually not doing too bad in terms of aggravated assault and robbery. We're doing. We're, we're probably in the lower 50% of major U.S. cities. That's not good. No, but that's about all I can say. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah, that's about all I can say. I mean, you know, I, I think about, you know, we were just listening to the Worcester Magazine show, and they were talking about people's people's childhood fears of the city of Worcester. Sure. Um, you know, and like how violent is Worcester? Like Worcester has the murder rate of San Diego. You know, Worcester has the aggravated assault rate of uh, New York City or Seattle. Hmm. Worcester has the motor vehicle theft rate of Jersey City or Mobile, Alabama. Like, I don't know. I mean, none of these cities are well-known hellholes, so I sort of feel like Worcester is not so bad as American cities go. No, and, and I think the, the big takeaway, and it's hard to see this anymore, it's hard to have, like, individual successes with American cities because crime in general, has, especially violent crime, has been trending downward now for a solid three decades. Yes. Um, so, it, it, you know, it, it's harder to pull meaning out of those numbers as they get smaller and smaller because you're starting to get into, unfortunately, uh, you know, statistical rounding errors sort of uh, territory. Right, right. I mean, this is the thing about dwelling on Worcester's murder rate that I'm a little worried about, which is that we don't have a lot of murders. So one murder, more or less, really um, kind of determines whether right. we had an amazing year or a terrible year. This was a year, for example, where there was... One murder where they dumped the body in an adjacent town, mm-hmm. the town of Holden, yeah. and therefore Holden now has this sky high for the murder rate, and mm-hmm. we have a lower murder rate than usual just because of this dumb – just because of this kind of a thing. And whenever those kinds of things are what's determining how great your statistics look, like – you should be glad that you have so few murders that those kind of things, you know, throw it one way or the other. But it also means that talking about it is not that helpful. Right, right. We're going to talk about transit in Worcester. Brendan, I have two hooks for transit in Worcester this week. Hit me. One of them is um, we're not going to have any service cuts. Yeah. Uh, I knew it was going to happen this way. I knew it. Every time. They're you know, just it like, does oh. always happen that way. They're just like, oh, it's going to be an apocalypse. And you look at the numbers and you're like, it is going to be an apocalypse. And then they just move a lot of things around behind the scenes. And then they're, they're like, yeah, nothing's going to happen. But that's actually the most genius way of uh, doing nothing in the history, in politics, though, right? Or bureaucracy is like you threaten massive cuts and then you level fund. And because people are, are just relieved that there's not going to be massive cuts, we take our eyes off the reality that, you know, cost, the costs of things have actually risen in the same time frame and without uh, an increase, uh, a, a significant increase um, in funding, you're, you're actually still behind. It's aggravating. Anyway, I mean, I just don't like I just don't like being jerked around like that. I just don't like I also don't feel like the um, that, you know, massive service cuts in Worcester are like. The kind of thing which maybe could just kind of get figured out real quick and like maybe couldn't be. Mm-hmm. That really makes it seem much more precarious than I would like it to be. Right. Transit funding in Worcester. Do um, you have any idea? I, I genuinely don't know the answer to this question, so I'm hoping you do. Yeah. Where the leadership at the WRTA is headed? You mean because like the fact that they let the, like the previous RTA guy left or yeah. whatever? I, I just haven't seen anything bubble up, and I'm not sure if you uh, wasn't sure if you'd caught anything. I don't know about that. I do know that we're potentially going to have a, a, a new center platform at Union Station. All right. Um, this is something which would then let us have. Uh, I'm reading an article from Cyrus Moulton and the Telegram and Gazette. It would mean that um, you could have two commuter trains in the station at a time, which meant that you could um, more tightly schedule trains or that you wouldn't necessarily have like these kinds of crazy delays that you now have because right. you can only have one train at a time. This kind of, I can't figure out if this is a high, what they call a high train platform or not. It doesn't say anything in any of the documentation I've read. I was going back to this article, this proposal that we had read from the group Transit Matters back in the winter, regional rail for metropolitan Boston. And they had had one of their 
I don't know, one of their seven things that they were looking for that they thought we could actually do that would be better for our regional rail. One of them was high-level platforms, basically platform improvement, um, so that trains could so that trains could load faster, mm-hmm. trains would be more accessible. I mean, I know this new Worcester platform is going to be an accessible platform, so that's good. Anyway, this kind of made me this kind of makes me think that maybe we're doing like something good and visionary. Uh, in terms of following one of these seven things in in Worcester. Yeah, no, and, and I mean it's it's. I, I think one of the problems with getting our train system shored up the way we all know and have known it, it needed to be was ridership was not necessarily always as high as it as we would have liked it to be. Yeah. Uh, just basic supply and demand stuff. Um, it seems like I mean if you're a commuter into Boston now, your your commuting time is uh, from a driving perspective is now well over two hours on a, on a regular Holy basis. Holy cow! Um, and if that's the case, you know. It, but I also hear from my friends that are commuters by train that the trains are getting fuller and fuller. Yeah. Which yeah. is so, I mean it just does make sense that finally we've got the I think it, it's like the issue with anything in Worcester is the density problem, right? Like we know what we need to do to make something solid, but we also need to be able to show that there's going to be some use before we start shoveling money onto something. I think we actually are getting to the point where where the density is there uh, and the need the actual need is there, not uh, hypotheticals. And uh, so now we're kind of racing to to make improvements that that hopefully will take the edge off um commodity prices are down this week brendan brent crude oil is down is 80 dollars a barrel down five percent on the week and bitcoin is 6200 dollars down five percent on the week um we have so we have this report brendan from the research bureau i want to get all my complaining and all of my snarking out of the way at the top and then we will have a snark free bitching and moaning free discussion of this report perfect so the Research Bureau, ever since their terrible, terrible cable report of about 10 or 15 years ago, where they got most of the fundamental numbers wrong and then refused to acknowledge this publicly. Under very different leadership at the Research uh, Bureau. just so Under yeah. very different <laughs> under very different leadership, but with the same name. You know, I, like, if, I think if they were truly repentant, they would change, change the name to not the Research Bureau. Uh, anyway, uh, so an organization that I'm always very skeptical of and like to check the numbers of because they have a bad track record to my mind. Uh, I want to complain also that this is reported called City on the Move, which, dear God. We need new, new slogans. Snark out of the way and complain about the Research Bureau out of the way. There's a report called City on the Move, an overview and assessment of Worcester's re- transportation needs as of September 2018. Here are some highlights. Um, Brendan, did you know that Worcester's economic success derives from its importance as a transportation nexus? You know, I think I feel I feel, I feel like me attempting to read the first sentence of this report out loud comes across as snark. So maybe I should stop doing that kind of thing. No, but you know, it, it, it's actually a genius way to open the report because I think anyone that's ever paid attention to black markets in the Northeast has always recognized, or if you've got some cop friends or whatnot, uh, you know, I'm sure almost anybody would be happy to tell you that the amount of narcotics that flow north up uh, through the highways, like 91 and 84 and whatnot leading to central mass uh, is an important part of the the black market economy. So, and, and that's an easy thing to see. I think that, you know, regular standard economies are sometimes a little bit more complex and difficult to see just how important uh, a region may be in, in aiding them. But yeah, we totally are. I mean, transportation is kind of the backbone of who we are because we're, we're arguably the most central uh, city uh, to New England. Well, there's a lot of traveling that people do in and out of Worcester on a daily basis. There's 100,000 jobs in the city, and two-thirds of those are from non-Worcesterites. And uh, 40,000 people from the city commute out of the city every day. So there's this 
100,000 people coming in and out of the city commuting every day. So 40,000 are leaving? 40,000 are leaving. Wow. 65,000 are coming in. I actually think that's kind of a good, like, I I think that's kind of good in some ways. Like, I think about Manhattan. When I lived in Manhattan, I think the daytime population of Manhattan was a 5 million, Mm -hmm. and I think that the residential population of Manhattan was 1.5 million. So it was, like, massively people out of the city coming in to work there. Like, I think that probably for a city that's probably generally a good thing. Um, Uh... It's especially. I mean, I think it's probably also. I mean, it's probably healthy that we have more more people coming in than going out too. Just as far as like, okay, there's actually we're actually a center of jobs rather than a a place that people just have to live in sure. order to live near a job in a different city. Something that was surprising to me was that six percent of Worcester residents walk to work. That seems so high. There are dozens of you, Mike. <laughs> I'm definitely one of these people. Seventy-two percent of them drive alone. Twelve percent carpool. Um, the commute times for Worcester residents, and this is a Census Bureau statistic, is uh, most most Worcester commuters take five to twenty nine minutes a day to commute. Hmm. Um, I would like almost all. Like there's there's some who take more than an hour and a half, and some who take less than five. Is five minutes really constitute a commute? And how do they even have less than five minutes as a? Uh, yeah. I, it would take me long. That, that's the money. It takes me longer than that just to figure out how to get out of bed in the morning and make my way to the bathroom. You that's, know, I am I am self-employed, but I sometimes have have to go into people's offices, and there are people's offices who are five minutes from my house. Okay. Who I go to walk to work to sometimes, but that is really close. That is like a. I feel like that's telecommuting. I feel yeah. like we got. I think feel like less than five minutes is like what I usually do, which is roll out of bed, <laughs> and start typing, and making. Go some from money. this side of the room to yeah. that side of the room. Yeah. But very few people have more. Very few people have more than an hour commute, and very few people even have more than thirty minute commute. So I'm guessing that most of these uh, Worcesterites are. Uh, yeah, I mean, those numbers are actually kind of shocking because we were just talking about uh, transit uh, out of the city via train, and I think most people are thinking of that as uh, the main thing. Boston folks or folks headed to Boston, as well as, um, you know, the, the, how, how terrible from what I hear, because I don't do it anymore, the commute into Boston from Worcester has become. That last chart made it seem like there's pretty much nobody going to Boston. I mean, the, the, the high end of the commuting number is 90 or more minutes. That's, what is that, around 2,000 people? Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's a non-existent number. I mean, if, from this bar here, if you're figuring 30 minutes, 30 minutes is about the time it's going to take you to get totally traverse the city from one side to the other at its longest possible distance, uh, you know, at, at, at during rush hour. Uh, so that's kind of suggesting that, you know, the, the pe- where people are going are just our neighboring communities. Yeah, yeah. So it's, so it's, a, very, it's a very tight regional economy. Yeah, so again, there's, the, the, there's plenty of people coming in from Boston and going out to Boston, but Statistically, percentage-wise, it's not a lot. Right. Um, there's a sec- There's a little section here about regional transit. It mentions that uh, probably 70% of W of WRTA riders have an income of less than $25,000 a year. The WRTA made 3.8 million passenger trips in 2017, so about 10,000 passenger trips a day. So, you know, when you think about, if we're talking about, whatever, 100,000 commuting trips a day um, for people's work in and out of the city, 10,000 trips a day is not nothing. It's not no. massively key to the regional economy, but it's not nothing. Um, it, and we, we can get back to the number that the operating cost per passenger trip is $5.50. Do they consider a trip, I, I, I hate to be... Uh 
picking away on details here, but I just want to make sure I understand where we're headed here. Um, do they kind of trip round trip or each way? I think it's one way. Okay, so in all likely, I mean, if we're if we're really talking about uh, in all likelihood, that's going to be five thousand people moving by bus per day if they're coming and going. Uh, counting the number of trips, I guess, is a little bit fuzzy, right? Because you wouldn't necessarily if you're, if you're trying to get a handle on how much usage mm-hmm. there actually is in the WRTA, you'd probably want to look at it both coming and going as one unified sort of trip, like a yeah, whatever the return to the point of origin is. Yeah, and we, and we can look at the number of the number of people in Worcester who get to work by public transit is four percent. Okay. So again, it's a you know it's not a lot, and um, right. we can mention that for the uh, for the two um, percent are walking. You said. Uh yeah. So, oh no, more than that, six percent. Um, okay. The operating cost per passenger trip for demand response vehicles is almost $27. So again, whenever you, you know, if you're mobility impaired and you got to call the special van, we had Jared Donardo on here talking about her mm-hmm. adventures doing this. It's like so much money. It's like very expensive for us to take people around in these vans. I mean, it's better than them not riding the van. But again, just in terms of um, keeping those numbers in mind, whenever somebody says, oh, hey, we should be using Uber and Lyft to do this. And you say, my God, it takes $8 to take Lyft across the city. It's like, well, it takes the, the RTA, like maybe five right. bucks to get right. people where they're going. So not that much. Um, I want to mention something completely perpendicular to this, and then we'll go to a break, which is that tomorrow is the 100th anniversary of the death of Cornelius Kelly, mm. Kelly Square's namesake. And there is going to be a memorial event with uh, people from the military and people from the clergy and people from the city tomorrow at 4 o'clock. 4 o'clock Saturday in Kelly Square. They'll have a wreath. They'll have Bob Largess and his uh, horses drawing a hearse. It will be a good event to remember to remember a, a man who died in the First World War and who gave his name to one of our beautiful, uh, one of our most Worcestery Worcester things. We were just looking at this section of this report on ride sharing, which is mentioning that there are 4.7 origin trips per person in Worcester per year. Statewide, it's more like half a trip per person. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of people in Worcester, 10 people in Worcester are riding the Lyft and the, the Uber 10 times more than the average Massachusetts resident. There's not really much in here on that front, but I, I was just curious. What I was looking for was um, it seems as though this fall is when Lyft is going to start uh, actively engaging um, governments in terms of being a, a participant in their uh, muni transportation plans and whatnot. And it's the secretary of MassDOT is uh, on their steering committee. So I'm just, it, it would seem as though at some point in time we should start seeing uh, at least some integration between the way uh, Lyft, at least, not necessarily Lyft and Uber, but Lyft, at least, uh, functions alongside the regional RTAs. I would love RTAs. to see. I would love to see it. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a big rideshare user, mostly a Lyft user, and I'm always trying to use the weirdest um, uh, add-ons to Lyft that I can, and none of them ever work in Worcester. Like again, when we had Jerry on, we tried to get the like assisted van. No assisted van. No, you can't get an assisted van in hmm. Worcester via Lyft. Forget about it. The section in here on biking is also kind of doesn't have a lot of info that I, I want to talk about on the radio. Um, there's a section about, about being pedestrians in Worcester. Um, it mentions that it, it lists the most dangerous intersections for pedestrians in Worcester from the years 2001 to 2014. Um, I'm kind of stunned. Like uh, the the most dangerous injury-wise. Uh, has 13 injuries in those years. Basically, an injury a year. Huh. The, state, the, the the one with the most fatalities in that time is Park Avenue and Parker Street. Um, Where is that, Mike? 
Park Parker Park and Parker is like uh, there's like an Austin liquor there. There used to be a blockbuster down there. It's oh, kind, yeah. of, kind of on okay. your way to Big Y. Kind of, yeah. kind of if you're going from Big down Big Y down to Big Y from Park Avenue. Um, so really, the thing is, there's traffic fatalities, pedestrian fatalities in Worcester all the time, as I know from reading the paper. Mostly, it seems to me people crossing Lincoln Street mm-hmm. or people doing weird things on the interstate. So these intersections, I feel like this chart is not helpful. This is this is just me. This is just aimless complaining, which is that this chart is not helpful. These it assumes that people are actually using crosswalks, and we tend to put those in intersections. Which that's, that's a you know I hadn't considered that, but that's a good way to put it, which is that intersections are much less important to pedestrian life in Worcester hmm. than this report assumes. Well, they're actually, they're very important to pedestrian life, but they uh, are not because they're, they're not used sometimes. Yeah, they're not they're not where people are getting hurt. Let's put which is good. Hey, use the intersection, don't get hurt. That's what we're learning here. There's a good section in here about train transportation. We had uh, there were in 2016 there were about 1,500 people a day who were riding uh, the riding the train out of Worcester to their work. So that's how many people. 1,500, huh? 1,500. I figured we'd be above that now. This is you know what I love it's about a couple this years study ago. is and we've talked about this a couple times recently where I think one of the funny things about Worcester, especially the longer you're here the easier it is to think that you got the whole place figured out, right? And then all it takes is like a turn yeah, down right. a different street to realize like, oh, I don't know anybody in Worcester. I don't know, right. I have any idea what's going on. And I, and I love that, like constantly rediscovering the city. If I think through like my universe, uh, and I think part of that is because I spent so much time commuting to Boston myself, in my head, you'd have a hard time convincing me that you know everybody in Worcester doesn't just get up in the morning and shift 43 miles to the east going to Boston. Yes. But that's just my obviously my experience, and that, that experience clearly does not... Uh, Play it out in the numbers in any meaning, meaningful capacity. I, you know, I, I I mentioned this on the show many times over the last 12 years, which is that since my connection to Worcester started off with uh, people in Worcester who were struggling mm-hmm. and continues to involve a lot of people who are struggling, I really have a hard time imagining that there are people in Worcester that at least most people in Worcester have a job, mm-hmm. have a house, mm-hmm. don't have, um, if not a addiction to heroin, then a very active heroin practice. Right. Um, but I think that's actually not true, that most people in Worcester don't have a heroin thing, and they <laughs> do have some source of income. But I think that is safe to say, yeah. But it, but My, it, my people, not that way. But, you know, that's a, going back to, like, where we talked about it a little bit at the beginning, and I think the show before us, so that's kind of what they're honing in on, right? Like, people look at the, the novelty of, like, figuring out a city and whatnot and, uh, you know, des- deciding whether how it's changing and why it's changing and whatnot. So much of that is just based on, you know, simple observations by an individual that don't actually mean anything. Uh, you know, if, if, if your day-to-day is uh, you're, you're engaged with a lot of people who are struggling with addiction and may be on the lo- lower end of the socioeconomic uh, ladder, that's kind of how you're going to view Worcester. And uh, you can kind of start to understand why there are so many people outside the city who have such a negative view of the place because really all they see are old reports like crime reports on TV or in the newspaper or whatnot that don't actually bear, uh, play themselves out very frequently. But from an outsider perspective, that's all you're going to see. Someone like myself that uh, does have a house and is employed and most of my, my circle uh, falls into that same category, my view in the city is like, wow, things are fantastic. And it, But neither of those things are actually realistic and mean anything whatsoever. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, Brendan, something on this that really confused me that you can probably explain this to me because I don't – Probably not. I'm not sure that this paper explains this to me. <laughs> so the total container traffic through the CSX Worcester Freight Terminal went up between 2011 and 2017, went up tenfold. Okay. That's a 
meaning a lot. Well, isn't that because of the new CSX uh, rail yard? Uh, I think it is, yes. Although that was in 2013, according to this, that that happened. So it even, it really, I mean, it went up fourfold. It almost doubled in 2012, and then from 2012 to 2013, it tripled. That's okay. what, that's Maybe that's that initial thing. But then it kept going up steadily from there. Yeah. Um, I guess I hadn't realized that it was such a big deal. Mm-hmm. Like, I thought it was a big deal. Maybe, like, it doubled it or went up, right. like, 20% or something. I hadn't realized it was going to go up 10 times. Well, I think that's going back to how we opened this up, too, right? Like, you know, the, the opening paragraph there, which I think you kind of correctly chuckled at, but talking about the importance of transportation to the region, you know, when we talk about transportation, especially when you and I talk about transportation, we're usually talking about people walking or taking ride shares or buses or whatnot. But it, when you look at it from an economic perspective, it's the transportation industry. And we're talking about 30,000 people driving trucks, you know, long haul. And, you know, we are, we're talking about massive numbers of containers that are moving around. It oftentimes doesn't actually have anything to do with the people moving. The people moving is just kind of like an accessory byproduct to uh, these massive systems that are the foundation of our economy. And we're kind of a, a hub on that front. You know, there's an interesting there's an interesting uh, statistical parallel here, which is that the um, the uh, total number of containers that pass through Worcester every year is about as ma- as many as the total number of commuters that pass through Worcester every day. Yeah, about a hundred thousand in both cases. But it's you know those containers are full of things, right? Fun, like fun fact. Yeah, that was a fun fact. There's not there's a section about the uh, there's a section about the airport, but I don't feel like there's anything to say about they don't say anything about the airport. I don't know what there's to say about the airport. It's like a potentially could be important. Yeah, you know you know what I would like to mention about the airport? Do it. Because this just dawned on me while I was standing on the common. I was with a, a cousin who was in town from Alaska this week, and um, but grew up around here. And uh, we were walking around downtown. I was showing some of the new development. And as someone who – I grew up right next to the airport. I'm one of the hills like that are like parallel to it. So it was like – that's, that's what woke you up all the time was like just the engines firing up, you know, 20 minutes before taxi. You know, it was like that was enough to like rattle the entire neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And we were standing down on the common and, you know, the, the JetBlue flights are like flying overhead and other flights and whatnot. And it dawned on me that planes don't make any noise anymore. Like, I feel this was something that we were talking about when we started bringing aircraft back up to uh, Worcester Airport, that you kind of had the, the folks that had lived there long enough or moved in before, like, since the, the air traffic was a significant factor. And there was a lot of, lot of like, sort of grumbling in the corner, like, oh, we moved in next to the pig farm, right? Like, because the air, airport's coming back alive. But so much has changed in terms of air traffic over the last 30 years that, like, planes aren't... Yeah, like these are like higher efficiency engine, quieter engines. It's kind of like when you pull up alongside a Prius. Like you know it's there. You know it, you know it's capable of moving. You but can you're, kind of feel it's there, but you can't quite hear. That you can't. There. You have no idea what's going on. Or a Tesla is probably a better better example now. Planes, yeah, it's kind of cool. They have a bunch of they have a bunch of recommendations, most of which are literally uh, our transit should be better. Some of the specific tr- recommendations. Um, under public transit, they they say quote the WRTA should partner with ride sharing alternatives. Uh, including entities as Uber and Lyft. See, for example, Lyft's Friends with Transit Initiative. Oh, there we go. Okay. And taxis and livery services, et cetera. So that sounds good. I'm really excited to see where that goes uh, in between 2018 and 2019. Again, I, I just can't imagine that our Secretary of Transportation would be a part of that steering committee, uh, and we would not have something meaningful happening uh, at a minimum in Boston, but hopefully bleeding over to Worcester. Please, let's do it in Worcester. The other thing, the, the other area where they talk about something that um, is specific is when they're talking about future scenarios, quote, automation will undoubtedly impact road infrastructure and travel patterns. Parking should be phased out in new downtown projects using the framework in place in the city's commercial corridor overlay 
district. Parking maximums rather than parking minimums should be standard in zoning. I feel like this is an interest. This to me is says the new the new research bureau. I feel like the old research bureau would have been like pave it all, <laughs> knock everything down, build a parking lot. Yeah. Um, transportation related. How are you feeling about? Uh, have you had any, any in, encounters or engagement with uh, self-driving Teslas with their latest sort of update that's like almost automated everything but red lights? I've n- I've never, to my knowledge, seen a self-driving vehicle. Okay. No, it's it, it was something I noticed. Um, I think it was Christine Peterson over the Telegram uh, threw a really funny tweet uh, a couple weeks back where it was just it was, it was just a copy and paste from the Mass State Police. I think it was heard on the scanner though. A uh, number of motorists on the Mass Pike. Uh, calling the state police frantically to report a gentleman uh, in a fast-moving Tesla with both feet out the window playing the <laughs> playing the guitar, and it was like I'm trying to this visual in my head of like a dude in a Hawaiian shirt just playing the ukulele like cruising 80 miles an hour down the Mass Pike, and I'm just because you don't see Teslas are one of those things like like a Maserati like you might see one a month in Worcester and yes. be like how'd that guy get lost? Not not for me not even once a month. You don't see that many of them uh, around here. I, I'm just really curious what other people's experiences are and and feelings now that that's like a total Totally real thing uh, that it seems like it was only five six years ago that we were talking about you know self uh, driving vehicles in this hypothetical that you know decades away and they're here you know it's it's part of this it's it's a loose part of bigger transportation conversations that I feel is people are mostly just kind of willfully ignoring because it's not their vehicle uh, and a lot of folks I don't feel it's like smartphones right like. Before the iPhone existed, nobody really saw room in their life for a smartphone because they never had one, and it was like a solution to a problem that nobody had really identified right. for themselves right. yet. Right. But like, now this thing is here, and you know, I mean, you, you, there's a lot you can take off the table if you don't actually have yeah. to to pilot a vehicle in that uh, whether it be the five minute commute or the the forty minute commute. There's a lot that can be done there if driving is not the thing you're going to be focused on. Is this going to connect in a lot to marijuana legalization too? Do you think? That's a really – well, I was trying to think – that I, I forgot to ask – it's a question I was going to ask somebody I ran into the other day. Like, in the Commonwealth, like, so you've got a vehicle that comes – that is now, by the fact, the factory standards, can take care of itself, up to, I think, being the first car to red light. I think is the only thing they haven't uh, pushed down in terms of software updates. So, like, it still needs help figuring out where to stop and when to stop at a red light if you're the first car. Um so, like, yeah, if you're intoxicated and, like, what if you're, like, intoxicated and you hop in the back seat? Like, you're not, yeah. you're not, I'm nowhere near the steering wheel. I'm not doing anything wrong here. Or you take a nap. I mean, things that you shouldn't do, but, like, it is. I'm high, but the robot's not high. The robot's not high. The robot is just fine. Like, have we figured that out yet? Like, do we know what? We got some homework to do, Mike. The last thing I read, we tried to not snark too much and not be too pointlessly critical and bitchy. This next thing is about the Worcester City Council, so those provisos are out <laughs> Off the, the <table>. window. <laughs> Worcester City Council, cool to tax hike for multifamily housing of five units or more, says the Telegram and Gazette headline. This doesn't mean that they think that this tax hike is cool. Yeah. They mean that they're not that excited They're not that it. excited about it's it. It's like yeah. a little bit of a weird headline. This is an article by Nick Katsopoulos. So this is something that we've been talking about for months, the idea that since Worcester has a dual property tax rate, we, tr- we tax residential property at one rate and commercial property at the other rate, mm-hmm. um, that right now big apartment buildings would be considered residential right. because they're residential. But you could say, well, it's commercial. It's a business. So it's a business. Yeah. So maybe we should tax it as a business instead. Uh, and if we did, because our business tax is higher than our residential tax currently yeah we could tax all these big apartment buildings at like way paying make them pay way more property taxes and then we would have so much money brendan sure it would be great but the city council is like um 
It says here that it says here that they are that the uh, the full council referred this proposal back to the municipal operations committee to rediscuss and restudy this because of they expressed concerns about quote unintended consequences for tenants and landlords. The unintended consequence would be uh, that apartments would be more expensive. How is this an unintended consequence? <laughs> you raise a ta- you raise taxes on living in an apartment building yeah. and it gets more expensive. How is that an unintended consequence? That's the whole point. No, and this is where things get weird fast because I think this is one of those uh, sort of issues that's come up in the city that on the surface it kind of makes sense, right? Like, I mean, both of us kind of spit that out rather fluidly that like, yeah, it's a business. So like, you're fitting the business category. I'm you don't so strongly. I mean, I go ahead. What? No, go, were you, go ahead. Were you going to disagree or were you... I'm just going to. I'm just. Uh, what I was. I feel like before, whenever I was saying it was a business. I was trying to say that in a sarcastic way. Oh, well, because it's a business. It is a business, but it's not like, I mean... Ugh. You're in go, the go. the business of housing. That's right. Like, I mean, that's... I'm, I'm just having a... Is a hotel a business? I'm like, just having a rage seizure right now. Go, go ahead and, no, go ahead and talk. No, but, but I think at you. The, the, that's, that is unintended consequences. Like, I mean, so you can't make giant shifts in housing uh, and housing policy without expecting some of that delay on the people who are paying those rents, right? Because yes. that business is totally structured around the idea... That some there's demand for your space and someone's going to pay you to be there. Yes. And if that space ends up costing you more as the owner, it's going to cost the people who are living there more, or your profits are going to shrink. It's 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 a no-brainer. I just all I was going to say was I think this is again kind of skirting around the bigger issue that we have a huge problem with our our, our tax system in 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 the local economy, uh, and we need to really figure out a, a plan. You and I've been saying this uh, not necessarily in agreement, but we've been talking about this for at least a decade now. A long-term plan, wouldn't that have been nice a decade ago or two decades ago, to start shifting things back to a single tax rate? Uh, because now we're at one of those points where there's tons of growth in Worcester, both on the housing side and the commercial side. Uh, and, you know, we're actually at that point where if we had started this 10, 15 years ago, we'd be getting to the point where because of that increased development and increasing development, uh, we could start seeing tax rates lower for both commercial and residential properties in unison. Uh, and everybody w- might be paying less. But now we're just in this weird game where if someone's going to pay a little bit more this year and somebody else is going to get, you know, it's going to be kicked their way next year. How can we be legitimately having a conversation like uh, Bill and Josh were right before us, uh, or I mean, Bill wrote about this week in um, in Worcester Magazine, like a really well-fleshed out piece on gentrification and uh, the ups and downsides and the sort of middle road that we hope to be able to travel down on that front. We're having that conversation over here. Then over here is this like, well, we could definitely use a little bit more revenue. Let's stick it to the people who are renting. It just doesn't make any sense. This article frustrates me. I'm sure the debate would have frustrated me because two counselors who I like and respect say stuff that I um, don't really like or respect. Uh, Both Sean Rose and Matt Wally um, are talking about says, Sean Rose, the committee chairman, said the proposed change is a matter of fairness. Those who own buildings with five or more housing units should be taxed at the commercial tax rate because that's the threshold in which properties like that are considered a business. And my feeling is like that, like, I think fairness is important. I don't think this has this has zero to do with fairness. Like, why? Like, the fact that we tax commercial and residential properties at a different rate to begin with mm-hmm. is just this totally arbitrary, crazy right. thing. The fact that it changes every year. Like right. The council next year could make the residential tax rate even lower, I guess, and make the commercial tax rate even higher or make the commercial tax rate way lower than the residential tax rate if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. It could change any given year. Um, the fact that these are the two bundles that we bundle things into seems completely arbitrary and frustrating to me. It forces every municipality to make these big policy decisions around, um, 
I don't know, whether you want the price of commercial real estate or residential real estate to be higher or lower mm-hmm. year to year and making people do all this guesswork about what the city council will look like 20 years from now when you try to sell your house. Right. Um, all of this seems so arbitrary and crazy and stupid. I wish we had a unified tax rate so that we didn't have to have this argument about what was fair and what falls into what category. Yeah. I would. I want to put this in the same area as, you know, there's... um. We spend so much time like assessing properties because mm-hmm. property taxes is important. So we spend all of this time having people go around the city, guess what your house is worth, even if you haven't sold your house in 20 years and don't expect to sell it in mm-hmm. another 20. It's very important for us to know what the value is for you to petition the council about what the value is. Go to these hearings at the state level, of property, whatever, to decide what the value of your house is. Um, this becomes so important just so that we can tax your house appropriately. There, right. there, are, are, there are alternative property tax schemes that would involve you – putting up an estimate. Mm-hmm. Have you ever read about these? No. I'm not going to be able to describe them correctly. I think they generally call them Georgian tax rate after somebody, George, who came up with this. One of them involves that you tell the city what you think your property is worth. Mm-hmm. And then if somebody offers you either that much money or maybe like, let's say 20% more than that, you have to sell to them. Really? Yeah. Like There's all these things where you get to decide what your property is worth, mm-hmm. but you have incentives to make an accurate right. estimate. Yeah. And so then nobody has to go back in and check your math or inspect your property or nothing. That seems like a great way to lose your house, but Well yeah. again, I mean I think I think it's I think it's you have to get that twenty percent right or whatever, that, that that additional whatever it is amount right. Mm-hmm. Um which is pretty much what we do here. Right, except the but the city has all the control on that front. Like our assessments don't line up with the, the with resale. Just, the city, right? In this case, the city is guessing, and the question is, how much do you want to fight the city's guess? Well, no, I well I don't know that it's guessing as much as their their goal in assessing is slightly different than the goal for a home buyer or a seller or uh, someone refinancing. Right? Like uh, if if you're for the city to assess houses extremely high, like uh, you know, be very, very liberal uh, and freewheeling, that we think this is crazy number, whatever the crazy number is, there's no upside for the city to do that. They're going to bring in revenue, but they're also going to be losing revenue at the number of vacant homes that are are there with nobody yeah. left to pay taxes yeah, on them. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, if you're if you're refinancing a house, right? Like if you were looking to take money out uh, in equity or open a, a HELOC or whatnot, having a high assessment is in your favor, right? Because your your home equity line of credit is going to be based on the equity that you have and that free cash. That's when you want to start using the more uh, sort of liberal uh, assessments that you see on the residential market, where it might not be. No one can really say what your house is worth when you go to put it up for sale because you haven't sold it yet. And ultimately, that's what decides what the value is for that one moment in time. So we can look at comparable homes in in your neighborhood, uh, you know, style of build, year of build, updates and whatnot, and try and cobble something together. Those tends to be, tend to be a little bit higher because they're favoring the seller, uh, in, at least in a healthy market. Um, so, but there's no reason why the city, there's no value in the city doing that. But I think that margin probably still fits within that 20% range. Well, anyway, uh, you know, this actually, your excitement around this makes me think that I should get one of these uh, papers about Georgian property tax oh, rates yeah. and read it. And we can we'll, yell we can, at each other for an hour. Well, we can talk about it next week. I, I feel like I've looked at some of these, and it does seem to me like there's insufficient provision for the fact that you kind of don't want to 
<laughs> suddenly you have to wake up one morning and realize, oh, some, some somebody bought my house. Somebody bought my house. Too bad for me. I'm moving out tomorrow. But I think the takeaway, though, is that I think we agree at the core is that it's the silliness of our taxation system is what is the problem. And these are all quick fixes. We could have a nuanced debate about whether or not, you know, business or residential. I mean, that that's neither here nor there. The problem is that the city needs revenue. Uh, and we have been sitting on our hands for decades as to the best way to capture that revenue, which in the Commonwealth tends to come from property taxes. In this case, it just seems like the, quote, unintended, I, I should say intended consequence of this is that it just says, you know what, Brandon, living in a four-unit building is going to be cheaper for you than living in a 30-unit building. Right. Uh, why that should be? Fairness. That's why. Yeah, I know. It doesn't make any sense and, to and me. And the arbitrary side of things is, is what's important, right? I mean, because what the city is essentially doing now, whether you look at it uh, within a, f- a five-unit uh, dwelling versus a six-unit dwelling under this plan or commercial versus residential, the city has really just decided it's going to tax denim uh, differently than it's going to tax plaid. Uh, and there's no rhyme or reason as to why denim should be costing more money than plaid should be costing uh, if they are fulfilling the same purpose of keeping us somewhat warm. I don't know. Yes. I mean, honestly, it seems like a a smarter thing would be to, I mean, again, I guess they can't do this, but really the thing would be to say, let's just like crank up the property tax rate gradually, the more and more units in your building. Yeah. So like once you have a million unit building, like it will be like impossibly expensive, but it will also be like have the density of a neutron star. It'll be incredible. It's also important to point out that the, the, the idea of taxing property is something, is a game that has been like a cat and mouse sort of thing for as long as taxation of property has existed, right? Like, there's still a couple homes up in the Burncoat area, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, that are those, like, really awkward things where the front is the front door is on the side and they're, like, a million miles long right, and they're only right, five feet right. wide because we used to tax frontage. Um, they you, used to ha- there used to be a lot of farms in Michigan called ribbon farms yeah. because it would be the frontage on the river. So the, every farm would be the shape of a ribbon. It would yeah. have the minimum number of yards on the riv- river and it would be as many miles long as possible. Yeah, no, and I, I mean, I, again, ultimately, I think the conversation needs to be how do we start unifying that tax rate while simultaneously uh, be taking care of the most vulnerable in the community as well too you know there's there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to lock in tax rates for elderly folks there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to give tax breaks to uh, young families and first first time home buyers or whatnot is because in that middle ground there's just so much to capture with a unified tax rate in conjunction with the kind of growth that we're seeing today. I would love to lock in tax rates for the elderly. I feel like that would get over, get away from the kind of annual drama that we have around the bus budget. This thing oh. or this thing where every year we have to say like, well, what about like the poor seniors yep. on a fixed income? Are we going to kick them out in the street? And it's like, ah, I wish we could have the conversation with saying like, we care about the poor seniors. Let's have the conversation I feel like the show ended a half hour ago, and Gabby just forgot to tell us. We may or may not be be on the air, (laughs) but but you, listener, are in our hearts. This is 508, a show about Worcester. We're going to keep talking here, and we will talk to you next week. Bye-bye.